In the very first Star Wars movie, Luke Skywalker is on a mission to rescue Princess Leia. He tries to convince Han Solo, a smuggler pilot who captains the Millennium Falcon, to join him. He thinks that he can make an appeal just that every young person, uh, especially of male um, orientation, uh, might the kind of appeal you might make, a sense of chivalry and the thought of becoming a hero, Han declines. Luke then realizes the one thing that means the most to Han and will motivate him and says, she's a princess, she's rich. And then all of a sudden Han pays attention and he says, you can make lots of money. And Han says, how much? And Luke says, more than you can possibly imagine. And, and Han says, I don't know, kid, I can imagine a lot. <laughs> when it comes to faith, I'm afraid we imagine very little. And I think that's to our detriment in our understanding of God and relating to God. We underutilize our imagination in matters related to what God is, who God is and what God is about. All you have to do is read the book of, of Job in one sitting and you will get that sense of, of the imagination. It staggers the imagination as you get to the crescendo at the end. You can do the same thing with the Psalms. The Psalms have four sections to them. And when you get to the very end, you feel the crescendo of praise rising. Or the book of, Jer of, of, the book of Revelations. We often say, oh, I don't understand it. It's because we lack imagination. It's not a literal description of everything that's going to happen. It's the effect of what's going to happen when the one who truly rules this world is honored and praised. And, and the effects um, go throughout the world. The result of our puny imaginations is that our understanding of God and God's purposes compared with the sense of God's glory and grandeur uh, leaves off our sense of wonder and mystery of what God is about, what God is doing. Think about it. How would you tell the story of God becoming human, being born as a baby only to become the savior of the world? We sung earlier about how, how humble the story is and how vulnerable it is. Who would have put it in that light? If you were a director trying to film this, how would you film it? Before telescopes, the average person looked upon the heavens as one-dimensional, as if the sky were, were some kind of a canvas and the moon and the stars were on the same plane, just a flat dimension that we look at. But now astronomers have helped us see space as vast and deep with dimensions of planets, stars, galaxies, novas, and black holes. It's complex and immense beyond our imagination. But with a proper understanding of what lies beyond our galaxy, we're filled with a deeper sense of wonder and awe, even when we look up now with our naked eye. Because hope involves waiting, 
we have to use our imaginations to help us envision what hope longs for. Children do this with Christmas presents. Before they ever peel the wrapping away, they imagine what's inside. And of course, what they're imagining is what they told you they wanted and they expect it to be that item. Biblical hope also makes a use of our imaginations, but not to speculate on the possibilities as much as to form a picture of the hope that is yet to be realized so that you can, you can have a sense of assurance of what will be. Biblical hope is not something we produce related to our wants and our desires, but rather it's tied to God's promises. The messages of Isaiah proclaims um, God's promise of salvation conveyed with poignant images that requires the use of our imaginations to put it into focus. Isaiah 11 is one such message. First, a little background. The unified monarchy of David that was established by David did not last. After Solomon, the nation was divided in two and different descendants of David ruled, one to the north and one to the south, the north being called Israel, the south being called Judah. And initially, it was the descendants of David who were the rulers and kings, but his dynasty did not last long. They were replaced. 200 years later, after David, Isaiah describes what once was is nothing more than a stump. To the north, an Assyrian invasion had cut down the nation of Israel, and people were killed or taken off in captivity. A few centuries later, the Babylonians did the same thing to Judah, the southern kingdom destroying Jerusalem and sending the people into exile. The once glorious kingdom now is in ruins. And yet Isaiah 11 signals hope. He's basically saying the Lord is able to raise up an offshoot from this stump. Just as David emerged from obscurity as the eighth son of Jesse, least likely to be chosen as king, so God will raise up another unsuspecting king of Israel from the stock of their ancestor. And then he provides three pictures that tell us what this move of God will mean and will look like. The first is that this is going to be the kind of king on, who is led by the Spirit of God. Now, this was true of Saul initially. Remember, the Holy Spirit was upon him and then withdrew from him, if you read the story of Saul. And then Saul got into a heap of trouble after that. And David, there were, there were times where the Holy Spirit was directing him and other times where he was directing himself. But in this instance, the Holy Spirit will abide with this king. He will be anointed with wisdom and understanding by which he will make good judgments. He will be anointed with counsel and might by which he will strategize, plan, and order the life of the people. And he's anointed with knowledge and fear of the Lord, which refers to his self-limitation as a leader due to his obedience and submission to God. 
don't know about you, but I don't hear that much in today's leadership circles, self-limitation of the leader. How many leaders realize I can only do so much, I'm dependent on others. There is one who rules over me, who I am led by. The rule of this king will be characterized, the second picture, by righteousness and justice. When kings rule according to their own ambition and power, God's purposes are thwarted and people suffer. When the ears of a king are open to the persuasion of others and they choose to only look at what's been presented to them, then people of power and influence get their way at the expense of others. This king is about doing what is right for all. The kind of king who cares for all his subjects and is able to elevate the downtrodden and to restore the marginalized. This king knows that the line of justice and injustice between things being right and things not being right is drawn not between us and them, but runs right through the heart of each and every one of us. And this king will be sensitive to that. Jesus preached about this hoped-for kingdom, this future kingdom of God, as if it were already present in him and his ministry. People of faith who heard his words recognized them as corresponding to such promises of, that Isaiah had made. This is why you hear them say, we've never heard anyone talk like this. They were stirred and something in them said, this sounds right. Jesus was the king they had waited for and the one they could celebrate without reserve. As David's descendant and God's anointed, he is the one to lay claim to the throne of Israel. And that's why in the, in the narrative, the birth narratives of Jesus, why Herod is all a flutter, why he's so disturbed by this news that a newborn babe, a babe who's, who who is of Jesse's descent has been born because he knows that person has the rightful claim to the throne. This is the one who will rule with justice and righteousness. He is the one who will provide his people and the people of this world with forgiveness from sins and its power over us. The third picture depicted in this text of God's kingdom awaits a future fulfillment. There is both an already, an already aspect of God's kingdom come here on earth and a not yet aspect of God's kingdom that will be fulfilled in the future upon Christ's return. In other words, we live between the first advent and the second advent. The first advent has fulfilled many things, but the second advent is what this passage now refers to. There will be a new order unlike anything we've ever seen in our lifetime. The social peace achieved by the rule of Christ will be extended to a universal peace that includes the realm of nature. 
we imagine a picture none of us thought possible in a world as we know it, where defenseless animals can be in the presence of their predators without fear or alarm, that they'll be able to rest and feel secure. It's like the old days when you let your children go out and play and you weren't afraid that they would, might be taken or, or at harm or at risk from someone else. The world as we once thought it should be, what it could be. He goes on and describes it this way. A lamb will, lie, will be with a leopard. I mean, a lamb will be with a wolf, a, go, a goat with a leopard, a calf with a lion, and a little child, we've always heard it as, will lead them. It's really saying the little child will tend them. The child will be in the pen with them without fear. And then something bizarre in the next phrase says that beasts of prey will feed alongside domestic animals. That's just not part of their nature or their makeup or their digestive system. How can that be? You have to use your imagination, what it, what it really is referring to. And we want to take things literally. We want to make sure it's accurate all the time. But what is the essence of what's being communicated is that all that we have ever longed for in this life, to live without danger and to feel fulfilled and satisfied is possible because God's promised it. That's what we hope for. This differentiation between imagination and, and wanting things uh, logical and sequential and nailed down is captured by a quote by Madeline Lingle. You perhaps know her best as a young adult uh, fiction writer who with works like A Wrinkle in Time. If you don't know this, that is the best-selling or um, uh, young adult book of all time. Um, and she didn't find a publisher until thir the 39th try. Took 39 publishers rejecting her work before one finally said, now uh, we'll take a chance. Smart. She also wrote about her Christian faith with a great sense of theological reflection. Here's what she wrote about the virgin birth. It is that name we assign to the theological idea that a baby could be born beyond the ordinary process of conception. The strain of explaining what some might call a genetic monstrosity of a doctrine has led some theologians to be skeptical. But St. Anselm long ago taught that the monstrosity lies not in asking how God did it, but why would God do it? See, that captures the imagination. The Christian church, for the most part, does not ask the how of God becoming human, but why? Because we need a savior. We need someone who can change this world that we currently are in. According to Isaiah, if God had not sent Jesus to be Israel's king, our world would be characterized by fear and hopelessness. We would be trusting that the world's national leaders would exercise good judgment in their 
counter threats to one another. I don't know about you, but I, I don't have a lot of confidence there. That it's possible to obtain justice in our courts if you have the right lawyer and the right influence on your side so that you might win rather than justice being served, you might win rather than lose. And then can you imagine waking up one day and not thinking about a terrorist attack or a, a weapons crime, a crime committed by, by gun violence, or someone gone missing, or a disease taking yet another friend of yours. We occupy, we live and dwell in a world in which it doesn't feel like we live without danger and without threat. And yet we are people of hope, people who have a certitude that what God has promised has been fulfilled in Jesus. We know about peace. We know about joy. We know what it means to be forgiven. So this one who will rule with righteousness Righteousness is just simply a biblical word for saying, doing whatever it takes in a relationship to make sure things are done right. It happens in marriage all the time where, you, where something goes, goes awry and you've, you uh, are hurt or angry and you lash out and it goes back and forth and finally one of you comes to your senses and says, I'm sorry, I've, I've behaved badly. It's not thinking that person is a person of ill will who, who means me harm or is dissatisfied with me, but this person cares for me and loves me, and I can trust them. So I'm going to venture that re reconciliation is the right thing to do. And even if that person has become your enemy for whatever reason, Jesus says, love your enemy. Even there. Take it a step further. Of course, we're human and we're stubborn and we've got our pride and who is God to tell us what to do? You see, we've already experienced what this rule of God means for each of us. And we try to live that way as a community of faith and then we're trying to point to it in our world at large that Jesus does rule God's kingdom has come. And yes, there's still a future fulfillment. That's what everyone wants to be convinced. But if you use your imagination, what already has happened in the first advent is what gives meaning to the second advent. But it's up to us to convey that hope, to live that hope and to point to that hope for the sake of our world. Amen.